Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, sitting in for Bill Nygut. Andre Dickens is preparing to take the reins as Atlanta's city for 61st mayor. He's got big plans for affordable housing, crime prevention, and keeping Buckhead a part of the city. But first, he's got to recover from a bout of COVID-19. The mayor-elect announced on social media last night that he caught the virus. And then there's Keisha Lance Bottoms. The outgoing mayor has two more weeks left in office to cement her legacy. We'll introduce our panelists in a few minutes, but first I'd like to bring in a special guest. Georgia lost one of its most enduring and beloved politicians over the weekend. Johnny Isaacson was the only official in state history to serve in both chambers of the legislature and in the U.S. House and U.S. Senate. But it was his jovial nature and bipartisan instincts that made him popular with voters in both parties. Isaacson's top aide for his first decade in Washington was Heath Garrett. Heath is, of course, a longtime guest here on Political Rewind. He's a Republican strategist who went on to advise people like Sam Olins and Chris Carr. But I'd like to talk to him about the man Johnny Isaacson was and the legacy he leaves behind. Heath, thank you so much for joining us. Tomorrow, thank you for having me. And let's start at the beginning. Um, you began working for Isaacson in the early 1990s, uh, I believe when you were still in law school. Um, and talk to me a little bit about where Johnny Isaacson was at his career at that point, and what made you want to work for him at a time when Republicans were still very much the minority in Georgia politics. Uh, you know, there's some funny stories there. I was I happened to be president of the student body of the University of Georgia in 1990 when he was running for governor at a time where there were very few Republicans in the state legislature or in the state of Georgia. It was a very blue state. And one of the administrators at the University of Georgia came up and said, hey, I think you're a little bit more like a Republican. I didn't know that I was. He said, you're a little bit more like a Republican. We cannot introduce Johnny Isaacson and still get our funding for the University of Georgia. Would you like to introduce this Republican for governor at this rally? And it was really this administrator who taught me a lesson in politics, right, that I didn't know and introduced me to Johnny Isaacson so that they wouldn't have to, you know, risk their legislative uh, funding by uh, being involved with a Republican at that time. I got to know Johnny Isaacson, worked for him in that campaign as a student, uh, and then he became a lifelong friend and uh, went to work for him for the first time full-time in December of 1995, uh, 26 years ago, in a run for the United States Senate and then uh, had the good fortune of working with him for the rest of uh, rest of his life up until this past weekend. Um, and let's talk a little bit about his his background. You know, he's no kind of deal maker, and a lot of that goes back to his time in real estate, his time serving in the legislature. When he arrived, he was something like one of 19 Republicans who were in the entire, I believe that was across both chambers of Congress. So it kind of forced him um, to cut deals where he could. No, that's exactly right. When he went to the State House of Representatives, uh, he was one of two re Republicans elected in 1976. If you remember, that's the year that Jimmy Carter swept the state and swept the nation uh, for, for the presidency of the United States. So he was a rare uh, person at that time. He was also rare because he was a businessman in the legislature. Back then, the legislature were a lot of lawyers, uh, a lot of other folks, a lot of other professions, but there weren't a lot of people who owned businesses. 
And so, and Johnny was a real estate uh, CEO of a large real estate company. And I remember early on, he taught everybody, he said, in order to make a deal in real estate, you have to have a willing seller and you have to have a willing buyer. And, and learning how to bring two people together like that to buy and sell a piece of real estate was great training for him, particularly in the minority in the state legislature where he had really tough, strong Democratic leaders who wouldn't let Republicans even speak on the floor at that time. He just he figured out how to make friends and he figured out how to win influence individuals and find common ground, even in that level of a minority status. And that taught him uh, the other line he always uses, even a even a broken clock is right twice every 24 hours. So in a lot of ways, uh, Johnny uh, learned a lot of lessons as a real estate broker uh, and in the minority. And he was in the minority right up until. Uh, the early 2000s. So he spent a large percentage of his career in politics being in the minority and figuring out how to get things done and, and compromising without compromising his principle. You were Johnny Isaacson's chief of staff right when he arrived at the House uh, or in the House in 1999, I believe. Um, and talk to me a little bit about what that that was like, because you think of Johnny Isaacson and I think of him as so at home in kind of that clubby atmosphere in the Senate where you're kind mm -hmm. of given room to get to know your colleagues, cut deals with them, try and find common ground. But the House is such a different beast. He was there for six years. He comes in replacing a firebrand like Newt Gingrich. It was right after the House voted to impeach Bill Clinton. Um, how did he deal with such kind of a partisan atmosphere? And um, is, was he kind of the same guy that we think of during his years in the Senate? He was. I do think your assessment is correct. If, if, if God had blessed Johnny with a personality for a chamber, it was for the United States Senate. Uh, that's definitely more fitting of, of him and his kind of expertise and his style. But he also succeeded, as you mentioned, in the state house, in the state senate, and in the U.S. House of Representatives. He did follow a legend in Newt Gingrich in a completely different style of politics, and I thought that was a good example of of how he was able to bridge the various uh, streams of Republicanism over the years uh, and when work with Democrats. It was interesting when he went to the House. It was John Lewis who asked to to introduce him on the floor. And uh, that was a real symbol of the relationships that Johnny had already built in the Atlanta community and in the Georgia community before getting there. And then it was his quiet style. Johnny is one of the things we uh, probably haven't talked about enough in the last few days is he's really one of the hardest working uh, public servants. You know, a lot of folks run for office. They want to be something. Johnny Isaacson ran because he wanted to do something. And he was the one that would be in the conference committee meetings at 2 a.m. when others had gone to sleep. He was the one making phone calls uh, to people when everybody thought the deal was over and there wasn't any more work to be done. He was the one that was always thinking, you know, weeks, months, years down the road, hey, if I can help this senator or this House member with this little thing now, I may be able to get them to help me with something uh, later on. And so uh, that patience and that hard work, it paid off in the U.S. House uh, in a way that you know, it usually takes years to gain influence in the House, but within two or three years, the Speaker of the House and the leadership really trusted Johnny Isaacson on the tougher issues like No Child Left Behind. He was the one who forged for President Bush uh, that great compromise that allowed us to really reform public education for the betterment of all students. 
what was he like to work for behind the scenes? He, of course, has this whole public image. We've known him as a guest on Political Rewind over the years. But what was he like behind the scenes? Is he the kind of guy who wanted to talk shop about politics? Or um, tell us a little bit more about the man behind the persona. Well, for many of us, he was just like a, a second father. Um, and you can't say this about everybody in politics, but we all oftentimes, uh, particularly reporters who didn't get to know him yet, they found it incredulous that we would try to say to him, no, he really is the same guy, you know, behind closed doors when you're just riding along in the car, uh, you know, driving three or four hours to somewhere in the state of Georgia uh, that you see in, in public life. And, and that was part of his magic, right? That was part of the great thing is he really did believe you're just supposed to treat people the way you want to be treated all the time. He had a great sense of humor. Um, he, he loved to talk about Georgia football. He loved to talk about Braves baseball. He, 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 did, he really did. Uh, our friend Clyde McGrady, who I think you know tomorrow, who's a Washington Post reporter now, has a great piece out yesterday talking about how, you know, he, he would get to know a little something about everybody on the staff's family. And, and no matter how short a period of time you spent with him, he, he always remembered those things. But he was always, he viewed public service as a calling similar to going into the ministry, right, of faith. And he lived his faith uh, through his actions. He didn't wear, wear his, his Christian faith on his sleeve, but he lived that every day with us as staff and with everybody he met. Uh, there were no strangers. Uh, there was nobody who was to be turned away because of politics, because of race because of socioeconomic he he one of our ministers had a great line about johnny and i thought this was a good one good way to say it because of his bipartisanship he said johnny really believed that government should be run like republicans want to run government but he believed he ought to treat people like democrats want to treat people and i thought that was a great line that described johnny Sure. I'd like to talk a little bit about the role that he occupied in the Republican Party and how the party maybe changed a little bit around him. Um, you know, throughout his career, he faced pressure from Republican activists for not being conservative enough. Some wanted him to throw more bombs. Others called him a rhino. Um, and while he certainly did move to the right on issues like abortion, he resisted other criticism. Um, and so how do you think he approached the, the shifting political winds in the party, especially as the center of gravity more, moved more to the right over the years? Well, I think he approached it with the wisdom and, and, and with his personal faith, right, that he was going to try to get up every morning and figure out what the right thing to do was from a policy standpoint and then try to adapt the politics to the right thing. And what he showed the world is that you can do that. Now, he had the patience, right, and he had the fortitude, and he was willing to lose an election or two to do things the, what he viewed the, to be the right way. And, and we've seen him do that early in his career. He, he took a couple of losses because he wasn't viewed as conservative enough. And, and the irony of that is, is that from a voting record standpoint, he was a very principled conservative, right? He really did believe in smaller, limited government. Uh, and, he, and he voted that way for in the state house, the state Senate, the U.S. House and, and the U.S. Senate. But he was a moderate personality. And because, he, you know, again, I hate the fact that the idea that you have conversations with Democrats and you work with them on things that are important to the country somehow makes you a rhino or a moderate or something that you're really not. But that's really kind of the, the genius of his style uh, is that he was able to bridge collaboration and, 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 and do great pieces of legislation 
uh, without compromising principle, that he just knew how to get along and work with people and bring people to common ground. And, but you, it is harder. It's, it's, it's easier tomorrow in the modern era to go out and just slash and burn and, and throw bombs and, and go on cable news and say whatever the, the, the immediate talking point was. But he decided that he was going to succeed really through hard work, working behind the scenes, uh, being principled, and he was never afraid to lose a race. And then by doing that, he won more races. This is what we try to say to people. You can emulate Johnny Isaacson. It may be a little harder in the short term, but it pays off in the long term. Unfortunately, too many of our friends take the shortcuts these days, and, and I hate to see that happening. We need more Johnny Isaacsons. I think, you know, Isaacson's longevity within the party, his kind of status as a godfather of, of the GOP in Georgia, I think insulated him and, and gave him a little bit more room to be able to kind of push back in moments where he really disagreed with things. He kind of took an arm's length approach to, to Donald Trump. You know, he ended up endorsing him right before he ended up getting the Republican nomination in, in 2016. But there were also certain moments where he was willing to, to push back. And Sam, I believe we have a clip um, that uh, of, of Isaacson talking about Trump, if you could tee that up. I had a couple of occasions to try and set the president straight on a couple of things he said, one about John McCain and the other about Charlottesville, West Virginia, or Virginia, Virginia. And I did so on the floor of the United States Senate, and I think I turned the discourse on those subjects to a much better light than they would have been otherwise, and I was proud to step out then, and I'll do it in the future whether I'm in the Senate or a past senator. Those comments are from a 2019 interview that, that Bill had with, with Senator Isaacson. Um, Heath, not many Republicans in Georgia could get away with, with standing up to somebody like President Trump, uh, given the political climate that we're in. Can you talk a little bit about that? And do you think, given our current climate, um, there's room for anybody to be able to take up that Johnny, Johnny Isaacson mantle? Oh, I, I do. John, Johnny lamented in the last couple of years that more people didn't take his approach, right? He had another great saying, a Johnnyism that we, we heard a lot of times. He said, in order for there to be a fight, two people have to be swinging. And uh, he knew how to not swing when he didn't need to, right? And, and Donald Trump put a lot of chum out in the water over the years, and a lot of people to this day still start swinging before they think about whether that's something to swing about. Johnny picked and he was he said, I'm going to call balls and strikes when it comes to President Obama or when it comes to President Trump. And he did that. He was sparing in his criticism. Right. Except for the moments where he felt like it mattered the most. He could have impact. Uh, and, and he did that effectively. And it, it, he, he said it's a blueprint for other Republicans and other Democrats on how to do it, um, not just with Donald Trump, but with other adversaries as well. But unfortunately, we're in a scenario where. You know, both sides in the primaries and both sides in the general election swing first and then try to figure out whether they should have been swinging, you know, a couple of days later. And social media has contributed to that. I do think others could emulate his uh, his patience and his uh, style. But you're, you're right. It, it would take a lot of fortitude in the modern era. Uh, but it's absolutely worth trying to do. We're going to let you go in a minute, Heath. But before we do, um what do you think his legacy is going to be? What, what do you think Johnny Isaacson wanted to be remembered for? And um, what do you think, uh, what kind of mark he'll leave in Georgia and nationally? You know, I think that, you know, because of the times that he's lived in and, and that he served, I do think he's going to be remembered as, you know, one of the founding fathers of the modern Republican Party uh, in the state. But I think more importantly, um, because of the time in which he retired, 
Uh, he, I'm glad to know he's going to be known as maybe one of the last statesmen uh, that we have uh, in, our, in our state, in our country. I hope that's not true, by the way. Uh, I hope that others will, on both sides of the aisle, will will, will learn and see his uh, example in life and the success that he had uh, doing things the right way and, and try to emulate that and realize it's how we treat people as much as, you know, we have a due process clause in the Constitution. And he always talked about how you treat people is as important as what you do uh, and, and, and for them and to them. And so I think that's going to be his legacy, right? If we were going to if we were going to have a legacy project somewhere at a university, it would be around the idea of statesmanship and what that means, uh, teaching that again. He really spent a lot of time in his faith and in his philosophy developing how to treat human beings in the political process. And I think that's what his legacy is going to be, that he, he treated people the right way. Uh, and it, it allowed him to have success based on what his principles and policies were. He, of course, in his last um, year or so after leaving office, started the Isaacson Initiative to raise uh, money and awareness for research into Parkinson's and other neurocognitive conditions. So I'm sure his legacy will play out in that way, too. Um, thank you so much, Heath Garrett, for taking so much time during uh, such a, a painful moment Um and I think I can speak for everyone at Political Rewind when we say that that Johnny Isaacson was a, a kind of decent man and, and he will be missed. Well, we're mourning and um, celebrating a, a great man and a great friend. Thank you for all that y'all have done to cover him over the years. Let's get to our first break. When we'll return, we'll bring in our panel to discuss Atlanta's new mayor. This is Political Rewind. <laughs> We're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, filling in for Bill Nygut. We want to thank Keith Garrett for spending so much time talking about Johnny Isaacson. But now I'd like to shift and talk about the transition of power that's currently underway in Atlanta. And I'd love to get back to our, or to, to get to our great panel who've been waiting patiently um, and thank them so much for joining us today. Let's start with Kurt Young. He's the chair of Clark Atlanta University's Political Science Department and an associate professor there. It's great to have you back on the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Always a good time to talk, talk with you and your audience. And we've got two reporters joining us on today's panel. Both of them are making their first appearance on Political Rewind. I'm super excited to welcome them both to the show. The first is Crystal Dixon, a reporter for Axios Atlanta. She's an alumna of the AJC who's written about local government and education. Crystal, we're so excited to have you. Thank you for having me. And last but not least is my colleague, J.D. Capilouto. He covers City Hall and in-town Atlanta for the AJC. And he spent uh, the better part of the last year covering the mayor's race and the Buckhead cityhood movement. Have you uh, been managing to catch any downtime at all since the, the elections? <laughs> I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me tomorrow. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's dive right in. Um, this has been a big few weeks for Mayor-elect Andre Dickens. He still is basking in the glow of his landslide win last month. Of course, he's hiring staff, laying the groundwork for his uh, early days in public office. But Crystal, he got thrown a curveball when he announced last night that he tested positive for COVID-19. How much do we know right now? And how does this throw a wrench into his plans for the transition? Well, as of right now, we only know that he said his symptoms were um, mild. Um, from what we can tell, he seems to be doing um, fairly okay. Um, I do think it's going to be interesting to see how he carries out his transitional duties over the next few weeks. Um, I think it's also going to be interesting to see 
how the um, how the Omicron variant has become the most dominant strain, and how that's going to play into how what what the city of Atlanta does when it comes to possibly um, I guess opposing another indoor mask mandate. So it's going to be a very um, interesting few weeks to watch. So. J.D., Audrey Dickens has had a really packed transition period so far. He's been to the White House. He's met with Governor Kemp and Speaker Ralston. Um, talk to me about what else we've seen from him in recent weeks and how much do you think this COVID diagnosis uh, will force him to adjust his plans? I mean, inauguration is two weeks away. Yeah, he's been all over the place uh, in the last few weeks here. It's been a lot of meetings, a lot of behind-the-scenes calls, a lot of moving around. Um, and kind of putting different pieces into place and interviewing, you know, potential uh, top staff uh, and, and top advisors, that sort of thing. Not too many, you know, big public appearances, not many flashy press conferences. He hasn't actually had a press conference, I believe, um, after, you know, those first few days after his win. But um, that makes sense, given that a lot of this work is behind the scenes. Uh, the public appearances that he has made have been, you know, significant, given uh, especially the one that comes to mind has been his appearance at a fundraiser hosted by the Committee for United Atlanta, which is opposing Buckhead Cityhood. He spoke there to a lot of government leaders uh, and local business leaders especially, and he also appeared at a local, uh, uh, it's called a Neighbors for United Atlanta, which is more of a grassroots neighbor-focused uh, anti-Buckhead City group. So we spoke in there as well and obviously gone to the White House and that sort of thing. So um, it, it's definitely going to have to be a shift for him since he's going to be isolating, he said. So. Um, but there was also a period of, of the campaign, uh, I believe, where, where things were still kind of dicey uh, and, and folks were still kind of getting their footing in terms of COVID. So they'll probably transition back to, to virtual uh, meetings, that sort of thing. I don't think it'll slow him down in terms of what he wants to do uh, and, and the, the people he wants to chat with before he takes office. You know, at that point, J.D. Um, just... Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. That point J.D. just made is important. By the way, J.D., I, I looked at your work. It's very efficient work uh, writing. That's what we try to get our <laughs> students to do, write efficiently, say the most of the my words. Yeah, good, good, good writing. Um, but that point that was just made is an important point. I, re I remember, Tamar, when he came to Clark Atlanta University, we had two mayoral um, 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 discussions and then the runoff discussion. So three times he came. And I tell you, each time what he exuded was energy, uh, youthful energy. Um, of course, he wasn't the only one, but certainly you can see it. He had a, a kind of an it factor there. I suspect that that's going to carry him through this challenge. Now, we, we've heard him say, and we can only take him at his word, right, that he has mild symptoms. So I suspect that it's not going to slow him down too much. I think that energy that we saw. Uh, in the campaign and then during the runoff will carry over into whatever we're dealing with right now, especially given the possibilities that we're facing uh, something different in the uh, upcoming weeks and months with this Omicron uh, variant. The last thing I would say, though, about this is that the key really is in his team that he puts together and that he's in the process of putting together, as was just mentioned. Uh, he is pointing to some of those individuals that uh, exist currently within the Bottoms administration that he make, although I don't think it's going to be a, a large number, but he may keep a number of individuals who can help him in this transition. But beyond those individuals and the team that he's pulling together, I think that's going to be the key for what kind of momentum transitions from his uh, energetic uh, election and runoff into his first um, 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 period of leadership in the city. Yep, that's right, Kurt. We just got, you know, the announcement yesterday from Mayor Bottoms that he plans to keep on uh, the current chief operating officer, mm. John Keane, for the city on uh, for a few months. 
A spokesman for Dickens told me that, you know, he just plans to keep him on for a few months for continuity, which personally mm -hmm. makes me believe that he's going to be looking maybe for a, a long-term or more permanent COO, which is a really top position for the city. He hasn't made any announcements, though, on chief of staff, and we're definitely – it's going to be important to see who he picks in, in those top roles. Yeah. Crystal, um, Andre Dickens has laid out a ton of priorities for his first days and weeks in office. Um, and I, I'm curious uh, if you could kind of weigh in on some of these and how much Omicron and some other news developments might change all of this. He's talked about reopening City Hall to the public, which I, I wonder if that might go away because of the variant. Um, he wants to set up a team to disperse federal infrastructure dollars coming to the city. He wants to go over a 100-day crime plan with the police chief and uh, ramp up community policing strategies. Um, Talk to me about some of that and, and how he might be able to implement some of those things. Well, he also wants to um, hire 250, I guess, uh, new officers in his first term, I mean, his first year in office, and also um, install some new streetlights that will also kind of serve as, as what they call crime, crime prevention uh, methods. I think coming in, um, he's going to have a more progressive council that may, um, be, that may be more willing to work together with him um, as, part of, as far as the Omicron variant and whether or not City Hall reopens, I think that's just going to, um, we're going to have to wait and see what the numbers from DPH and the, CD, the CDC say when it comes to the number of um, spikes, the spiking cases we're seeing right now in Atlanta and around Atlanta. So, Kurt, one of Dickens' biggest priorities is obviously tackling crime. As Crystal mentioned, he wants to hire 250 offices. He wants to train employees in de-escalation, racial sensitivity. He mentioned keeping on police chief Rodney Bryant on a 100-day contract and reevaluating him from there. But sometimes it's kind of hard to move the needle on something like crime. It's certainly easy to make promises on the campaign trail. Um, what are you expecting on that front? And will it be easy for him to change minds in places like Buckhead? Well, I'm going to ask you a question, Tamar. I'm not expecting a whole lot, uh, to be uh, quite honest. Um, and, for, and for this reason, of course, crime by itself is a tough, tough nut to crack in any major city in the United States. And I would say uh, globally, right? It's not an easy issue. So I don't suspect that one could snap one's finger and address the crime issue. And certainly not in the short in the short term. Now, what would what would happen? What should happen that could affect the crime issue in any setting is bold initiatives, right? And I'm not sure, which is the reason for my, my skepticism, I'm not sure that the political stars are aligned uh, uh, above his mayorship that will allow him to make these kind of bold steps forward. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. In many ways, the crime issue has been politicized. He's inherited a crime question that's politicized. We listened very carefully to him on the crime discussion. Uh, in his uh, mayoral forums, in our mayoral forums and some of his comments. And uh, um, what we heard was someone who is skillful now, skillfully trying to straddle the fence, and that is trying to address with a very real crime concern in the city, not just in Buckhead, across the entire city, um, but also someone who understands that the crime discussion in Buckhead and the crime discussion in West End often are two different discussions, and it has to be couched in two different ways to reflect the realities of those two different communities, right? Um, and then you add to that the point I made a moment ago, which is that crime is being politicized. I have on this show before uh, made comments to how the crime discussion in Atlanta and nationally reminds me of the tough on crime rhetoric in the early Nixon administration, right? And we saw, and, and again, in the Reagan administration, and we saw that what came out of that was not a true and I could be challenged with that word, but not a, an authentic 
grappling with the forces and sources of crime, what we saw rather was the criminalization of communities. And uh, uh, over policing. Listen, yeah, exactly, exactly. And listening to uh, Dickens suggest to me that that's not where he wants to go, but certainly the forces that are swirling around him may be leaning in that direction. And so we'll have to see how he balances those forces. I think um, I'd want to add to that. Um, I guess I would just sort of, I guess I would wonder if, um, are we going to have forces in parts of Atlanta that would want to push for that kind of resurgence of those kind of taxes that we saw in the 70s and 80s and early 90s? That, that's the one thing I think that um, Dickens will have to sort of watch out for and his team will have to make sure that, um, that he sort of listens to all sides and sort of realize that um, those tactics they may, they may have that, I guess, were uh, popular during those times were, were not, um, I guess, the best problem-solving me- mechanisms when it came to, I guess, stepping out crime in communities. Yeah, it's a really JD, tough for, to straddle. Uh, J- yeah. For his part, you know, um, Mayor or Mayor-elect Dickens has said that, that one of his top priorities coming in is making sure that Buckhead stays in the city of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, he laid out at this fundraiser that you mentioned, uh, the, the United Atlanta movement, talking about kind of a three-point plan for how he plans mm-hmm. to keep uh, Buckhead in the city. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so he kind of has, he laid out his vision for how he kind of, his ideas for how Buckhead will stay in the city. It's kind of three-pronged. I know one of them is, uh, you know, a run a well-run city, uh, you know, get city services back on track, uh, you know, like we just talked about, kind of execute that that crime plan. Um, another thing is, you know, simply uh, run a political campaign. You know, he kind of pitched it as a campaign. Uh, you know, get different leaders and get the public on your side and kind of get that message across to the public. And then the other one was, you know, uh, in the legislature, uh, working with leaders there because it could, it could in theory, stop there in, in the spring and never go to a vote in the fall. That, that's what Mayor-elect Dickens hopes happens. Um, and so kind of he thinks if he can do all of that, uh, then, uh, you know, Buck, Buckhead City won't happen. And he said, you know, quote, I am hyper-focused on Buckhead. He's not really shy um, about uh, you know, this priority, and he doesn't have to be because everyone knows that it's, you know, a, a massive issue facing the city. Crystal, we're starting to see opponents of the cityhood movement really starting to get into gear. You filed a story recently about how Atlanta Public Schools Board of Education is mobilizing in opposition to cityhood. Um, talk to me a little bit about what's at stake for them if Buckhead leaves, and what are some of the arguments they're starting to deploy? Well, APS uh, stands to lose about 26% of its annual operating budget if uh, Buckhead were to become a city. Um, that's about roughly estimated, I've seen estimates to say at least $232 million. Um, that's a pretty big chunk in APS's budget. And there's also the issue of um, whether or not um, Atlanta would have to, I guess Atlanta would still own the building that would be in Buckhead City. So Buckhead City would have to, would have to I guess, figure out how they're going to divvy up that property, as well as the issue of where the students um, who are currently living in the Buckhead area attending APS schools. Um, advocates say that they believe that they'll be able to write some um, language in legislation that would allow these students to continue attending Buckhead schools in Atlanta public schools. However, um, APS and others have said that um, the Constitution doesn't allow for that right now, that these students would have to be, go, have to be enrolled in Fulton County schools. What's interesting is that the Fulton County school system hasn't come out 
on hasn't put out a stand on how they feel about this issue. So it's going to be left to see and see um, how this issue shakes out. And Kurt, I mean, there all of these forces that are against Buckhead cityhood, they're under a pretty tight timeline right now because, you know, the legislature reconvenes in January. Obviously, they're only in session for about three months. And I mean, obviously, if something were to end up on the ballot, that wouldn't be until November 2022. But as J.D. mentioned, um, you know, people want to try and stop it in its tracks before it's even voted upon in the legislature. Well, well, Tim, I think it's too late to stop it in its track, right? This is not a new issue, right? This issue has been swirling around the city, I guess, for almost a decade, if, if not more, right? Uh, and so it seems to me that um, um, those who are opposing, what's the term now? Um, buck, Bucksnick? Bucksnet? Bucksnick? I'm trying not to say something uh, inappropriate on the radio, right? <laughs> no, but those who are opposing this thing uh, may be a little late. Uh, at this, because we've known that um, 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 the leaders, uh, the local leaders in the Buckhead area, part, those who are part of the uh, Buckhead um, grouping that were uh, trying to push this, they've been lobbying the, the state legislature for some time now. They've been in uh, uh, on, on the Hill pushing this issue for some time, perhaps not as openly and aggressively, um, but you heard this uh, unfolding. We heard this unfolding at, at, at previous points over the, over recent years, and I think those who are opposing it uh, a little late, but I don't think all is lost. I think that um, um, uh, um, Mayor-elect uh, uh, Dickens, uh, I think he has a, a, a strong strategy, especially especially on the level of public um, raising the public awareness of the implications of this. I think that's going to be uh, one of the uh, um, tactics that he can use to maybe sway. Because I don't think that there's been a, a, a very large public. Uh, discussion about this has been, of course, a strong discussion in the Buckhead area. Now, the limitation to that is not, as I understand it, the limitation to that approach may be how the voting process unfolds among residents who are in the affected area. And I think the signals are showing that the residents in the area, as we speak right now, may be uh, slightly in favor of it. But again, I think that there's a discussion that has to be had with the public in a way that raises these issues. Uh, beyond what has occurred so far, Tamar. Can I, um, Crystal? I want to jump in and mention um, the, the piece about schools. Um, one thing that hasn't been mentioned is that the Fulton County, the Fulton County school system, from what I can remember, um, there are maybe two or three elementary schools that serve that are somewhat near Fulton County, um, the, the Sandy Springs, uh, Buckhead area. So we have about five, 5,500 students who actually live um, in Buckhead and attend. Atlanta public schools. So the question is, would Fulton County have the space to absorb those students um, in their elementary, uh, middle, and well, as well as the um, one high school they have in that area, which is Riverwood High School in Sandy Springs? So all of that just remains the question. Um, that's another part of this piece that we haven't, um, that hasn't really, really, hasn't really been touched on yet. Yeah, there's just so many kind of questions here. Uh, and, and just complicated issues when it comes to de-annexing and annexing and right. changing all, you know, who, what city you're in. Uh, you know, there's all the questions about bonds. There's a lot of questions um, about, you know, the, the infrastructure and the water water bills, that sort of thing. Uh, and we could, you know, talk talk for hours about kind of all the different kind of things they'll have to unpack here and probably lay out in detail um, before, before this gets to a vote. 
JD, it seems like the leaders of the Buckhead cityhood, uh, cityhood movement, especially their their CEO, Bill White, he doesn't seem to be waiting to see how mayor-elect Dickens performs in, in the job. His statements that he's putting out are kind of make it a foregone conclusion, like, oh, no, we're exiting Atlanta. It is happening. You know, are you going to stand in our way or not? Um, which brings me to one of the uh, more interesting events that happened yesterday. Uh, mayor Bottoms held her final press conference while in office. Uh, she did start talking about the city movement and Bill White. She said she believes the effort is politically motivated because she pushed back against the Trump administration. Um, and that prompted a really fiery response from White, who called uh, Bottoms, quote, the most ineffective, unqualified, and yes, most dangerous mayor in the, the city of Atlanta history. Um, J.D., obviously Bottoms is on her way out the door, but that's certainly an escalation of rhetoric beyond what we've really seen to date. Um, how does this kind of set the table for Mayor-elect Dickens? Yeah, you know, he is known to kind of use some uh, exaggerated language, especially when it comes to, to Mayor Bottoms and the current city leadership. So, you know, it wasn't a, a huge surprise to me that he was, you know, very quick to kind of uh, cast cast her in that light. Um, but, you know, it, it's going to it's gonna be difficult for, for Mayor like Dickens to kind of smooth things over with the proponents of that group. Um, that's not his primary focus right now. I think he's more focused on, you know, standing with the people that are trying to keep Atlanta together and then also winning over, you know, the everyday folks who might be on the fence. Um, I think, you know, the, the the leaders of the Buckhead cityhood movement are pretty headstrong about this. And as soon as the, you know, runoff was decided, you know, they, they kind of said, you know, whether it's Felicia Moore or Andre Dickens, we don't really care. We want to leave the city regardless. Um, so he's going to run into to that issue. I don't think they'll be swayed as easily. So the, the people that you know, he'd really have to go to or people that are on the fence, as well as, of course, the lawmakers that will be the ones to decide whether this goes on the ballot. All right, let's get to our final break. Stick around and we'll be right back with more Political Rewind. We're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC, standing in for Bill Nygut. Our panel today is Crystal Dixon from Axios Atlanta, Kurt Young from Clark Atlanta University, and J.D. Capaludel from the AJC. Um, I'd like to spend this last segment of the show talking a little bit about outgoing Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. Um, she's spending her last two weeks in office kind of cementing her legacy um, with the city. And I want to talk to you guys a little bit about how you think the, the history books are, are going to view her. Um, Crystal, one of um, Mayor Bottoms' biggest priorities was affordable housing. Um, talk to me a little bit about the, the progress she made on that, um, or if other issues like closing the Atlanta City Jail or her response to the COVID-19 pandemic, her fights with uh, Governor Kemp over that, has that kind of overshadowed that, that area? Well, um, it's tough to say, but I will say I do believe um, some of the things that she's did on the affordable housing has sort of helped um, nudge the needle um, in the right direction and getting um, getting efforts to, I guess, have more people who live in Atlanta stay in Atlanta. Um, I do think, you know, history may look upon her administration and say that that was maybe uh, the, the I guess, the, the, the way that the city was able to bridge the gap, so to speak, to sort of, you know, get the ball rolling on that. As far as, you know, her um, spats with Governor Kemp, um, in the grand scheme of things, you know, I'm just not really sure. That's just not something, um, it's, it's tough to say right now. Mm -hmm. yeah, Kurt? Yeah, I, I, I agree with Crystal. Those, those are important points, and it is quite, kind of tough to say right now. 
I think though that one area that we can see her legacy being knitted together is her leadership in the city during the 2020 uh, um, um, protests over the summer of 2020. And the extent to which uh, she was seen as a black woman uh, taking the leadership of a major city and challenging um, both two opposing realities, right? The reality of, of, of um, police, um, um, uh, uh, um, p- police misconduct, if you will, or police um, 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 killings of black uh, citizens in the case of Rashad Brooks, um, and, but then also trying to address this issue of, of crime, right? And so, uh, and then and then you're seeing that reflected in the extent to which uh, the city is taking on some of the police reforms that came out of that movement in that summer and how that's being extended in the city. Um, but I also think that this question of the gulch is going to be a part of her legacy and how that plays out. Uh, that's going to be interesting to see. Um, I think the uh, forces in support of uh, the gulch uh, will have a say in how that legacy is written, but then also those who are in, oppos- uh, in opposition to it um, will be able to point very concretely uh, to missed opportunities, they would say, missed opportunities to uh, perhaps fashion different types of public-private partnerships uh, that would not uh, surrender so much of tax dollars uh, to d- developers as opposed to the much-needed areas uh, in the city uh, that we are hearing uh, uh, Mayor-elect uh, uh, Dickens speaking to right now. Uh, this housing issue is, uh, is a monster, as Crystal mentioned. It's a serious, serious issue, a uh, matter of affordable housing. And while uh, I think uh, Lance Bottoms can point to some uh, success in diverting some of those monies to uh, for example, the, uh, the housing fund, um, housing trust fund, I think it's uh, uh, properly uh, called, and the various uh, uh, um, 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 uh, provisions within that. Uh, we're still looking at a city that is scarily getting close to cities like San Francisco, where certain people right. just cannot live in the city anymore. Mm-hmm. And that could very well become a part of Keisha Lance Bottom's legacy. And certainly, uh, again, I'm going to say it, that uh, um, Dickens will inherit some of that. So. Uh, it's a moving target, but we'll see. Yeah, J.D., let's talk a little bit about this Gulch deal, which uh, I guess has been rebranded to be called Centennial Yards. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, it's going to to remake an, a part of the city that was a little bit desolate, kind of this tangle of train tracks and parking lots um, that they're hoping to to revive. Um, and, and you talk to Keisha Lance Bottoms folks, and they talk about how they're using, I believe it's some $30 million that was set aside by the developers that she's going to be using for things like a guaranteed income pilot project. Um, for a college savings account for low-income kindergartners. There's a mentorship program for the Water Boys. Um, talk to me a little bit about how um, how this Gulch deal could shape her legacy. Yeah, I, I think, you know, Kurt makes a great point that it's, it's going to depend how it, it turns out. And that sounds like kind of a, uh, you know, non-committal answer right now, but but it's really true. Hindsight's going to be 2020, mm-hmm. depending on the impact this thing has. And and uh, how it, you know, impacts possible, uh, you know, future displacement or gentrification, or it could be this lovely development that revitalizes downtown. And we'll say, yeah, you know, you know, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms had the vision. I think the community benefits that you mentioned are also going to be a big part of her legacy because she made equity uh, such a big, a big cornerstone for her administration. And this is kind of a way that she is putting money toward that while also championing development. 
um, and, and revitalization of these uh, communities like, like South Downtown um, that, are, that are in need of this revitalization. Um, and I think it also, when you talk about the Gulch, something that comes to mind is her relationship with the city council. This was kind of the first really big contentious vote that, that they had under her leadership. And you saw kind of that back and forth and you saw the council be a little bit more uh, independent and pushing back more than past councils have uh, on, on this mayor. And that really continued throughout her term. Um, she always kind of had a strained relationship with the city council and she kind of mentioned that a little bit yesterday. She's aware of it. Um, and part of that comes, comes down to her, well, the new council members, of course, being a little bit more independent, but also her more hands-off leadership style, not as fiery and as kind of uh, hands-on as uh, former Mayor Kasim Reed was. I think Mayor Bottoms joked yesterday that, that some members of the media had PTSD uh, because she wasn't, uh, they didn't expect her to be as, you know, her leadership style the way it was compared to her predecessor. So that's part of it as well. Um, Crystal, Kurt mentioned this a little bit, uh, as did JD, but let's talk about it a little more. A lot of her legacy will be based on the actions of her successor and of the city council. I'm thinking of, obviously, the, the Buckhead Cityhood movement, but also what to do with the Atlanta jail that she has moved to close, um, or at least kind of overhaul uh, the way it does its operations. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that and, and what we could expect to see in the months ahead. Well, I... Um from what I can tell, it looks like um, Mayor-elect Dickens uh, would be, I guess, open to um, using the jail as an alternative space. Um, I do think, you know, my, I guess my uh, my question would be whether the city council would, I guess, go along with that. From from what I can tell, the council is uh, quite progressive and they seem to be open to ideas when it comes to alternative uses for the city detention center. Yeah, that's that's a really the, the city jail saga has been a really interesting one to follow this past year um, because it kind of encapsulated that conflict um, where at the beginning of the year you had Mayor Bottoms administration saying we're doing it we're going to 100% close the jail and the city council said whoa whoa not so fast um, and they really were the ones that, that led that pushback they just the, the Bottoms administration couldn't get it through um, uh, they ended up reaching kind of a, a solid compromise where now they're going to open a diversion center at the jail while the jail functions will still continue. Um, and Mayor Lake Dickens, I believe, supports that, um, but has also left open this possibility um, of possibly fully repurposing the jail later down the road. I, I think this, this new council would, would possibly be in support of that, um, uh, but also this, this diversion center has kind of been um, a, a, big, a big thing that um, will be interesting to see how it turns out. And I think that'll be a big part of Mayor Bottoms' legacy as well, given her kind of a personal uh, ties to you know, the, the criminal justice uh, system when it comes to her father's experience and that sort of thing. You know, my mom used to tell me, Tamar, um, don't just listen to what people say, listen to what they don't say. And uh, we have not heard, um, uh, at least uh, not a not, uh, full-throated uh, support for continuing this uh, 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 approach in the in Mayor-elect uh, um, Dickens' um, short-term or, I would imagine, long-term policy, right? He's talked about um, um, and he's already begun, as I understand, uh, connecting with the um, um, the police on a very basic level. Um, we have, we've seen him talk about um, uh, the um, commissioning of 250 uh, new officers on the streets, right? So we've heard his uh, his 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 his. We've heard his um, crime policy beginning to unfold, right? And it doesn't seem to be a continuation or an embracing of some of these aspects of Keisha Lance Bottoms administration. 
and her, her. So I don't know that this is going to be a major issue going forward. And what I think, what I think, now this is kind of a political uh, strategy. I think what uh, um, Dickens, uh, Dickens may benefit from is to allow city council uh, to take the lead in uh, fulfilling what JD was just mentioning in terms of the current the, the current momentum, and then at the last minute leap in front of it and t- claim the victory as, as a part of his own leadership, right? But again, that's just a, some some some. Uh, free speculation on my part. Wouldn't be the first time that happened. (laughs) (laughs) JD, let's talk about the new city council in our last few minutes of the show. Mm -hmm. Um, Six new members uh, out of 15 in general, younger, more diverse, more progressive than in the past, especially on issues like housing and public safety. And we shouldn't forget Dickens himself was a two-term councilman before becoming mayor. Uh, Does that kind of smooth the, the runway for him going forward? I think that there's a lot of optimism on both sides about this future relationship. And it's actually not six new members, it's eight new members, but two of them are returning former <laughs> council members. So you have Alex Wan coming back and Mary Norwood coming back to join the council. They both come in, uh, you know, with uh, experience and, uh, you know, people and, and uh, Dickens has worked with, with both of them on the council before. Um, but yes, I think uh, that you're going to see them be a very policy focused and very action oriented. Um, I think the council is going to want to take a lot of initiative. I'm not sure how soon there, you know, there's going to be you know, an adjustment period and they're going to want to address some of the immediate issues facing the city. But I think you will, you'll see some, some big policy coming out of the city council. And I think they'll be pretty willing to work with Mayor Dickens. They seem pretty ideologically aligned. Um, and, and Mayor Dickens has talked a lot about he likes to draw circles, not lines. And uh, So I think if, if he continues with that philosophy, then that'll serve him well. Um. And, and JD, what do we know about the, the future for, for Mayor Bottoms? Has she talked much about what she plans to do after she leaves office in two weeks? Yeah, she hasn't said what, what exactly she plans to do. She plans to take some time with family and kind of be a non-elected official for the first time in, in over a decade um, and just kind of figure out what is, is next for her. Uh, she said that this is, you know, a, a period on her term as mayor, but a comma in her life. And uh, she said, never say never when asked about a possible White House job. Um, She said kind of never say never has been her kind of answer so far. So it's really unclear. We'll have to see. All right, Kurt, you're going to get the last word, but it's got to be fast. Very quickly. I think we should look very carefully to her following the footsteps of of, um, Stacey Abrams and staying involved in the national political discourse and then that being a leap, uh, launching pad into future endeavors in the political realm. All right, Kurt, you get the last word. That's all the time we have for this holiday week edition of Political Rewind. I'd like to thank our guest, Kurt Young from Clark Atlanta University, and our two first-timers, J.D. Capaluto from the AJC, Crystal Dixon from Axios Atlanta. You guys knocked it out of the park, and thanks for joining us. Bill Nygut is taking some well-deserved time off, and we'll be back soon. Tomorrow, you'll be hearing from guest host Greg Bluestein. I'd like to thank GPB's Natalie Mendenhall, Sam Burmis-Dawes, and Jesse Neiswanger for their work. You can always listen to the show live online, either on GPB News website or through the GPB News Facebook page live stream. If you missed any part of today's Political Rewind or you want to listen to our past shows, be sure to subscribe to Political Rewind wherever you get your podcasts and join the conversation on Twitter. I'm Tamar Hallerman. Thank you for joining us and have a happy holidays.